Hi everybody, welcome to my Friends with Heroes podcast. Today I talk with Emily Ginger about her work in in clinical psychology and like how she helps patients, you know, deal with certain issues. It's a really fun and interesting conversation. It's different from the ones I've been usually doing, which is about disability related topics because I wanted to switch things up and include other topics as well. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode, and happy listening. Okay, so tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the disability community. Well, actually, that's a pretty lengthy, circuitous journey for me. (laughs) Um, So initially, I really just got interested in kind of um, social justice issues early on in life, based on my background and where I was living on the south side of Chicago, just really hyper socially, socio-politically aware. And Um, you know, I started college majoring in natural sciences and environmental, or what was it? Natural resources and environmental sciences. And I realized I wasn't interested in that during my freshman year. And I was really interested in more of like social justice issues. And I started canvassing. So going door to door, fundraising money for different organizations, nonprofits, like um, actually the human rights campaign um, and then public interest group in California, as well as Illinois. So I moved out to San Francisco at 19. And that's when it hit me that I was good at working with people you know, going up and speaking to, you know, thousands of people and giving them a pitch in 30 seconds and trying to give them money, you know, get them to give me money on the spot, this stranger on their doorstep. Um, And it just occurred to me, I'm very good at working with people. And still with this social justice, you know, drive, I was frustrated with just fundraising money for these sorts of campaigns. And I concluded, you know, the only way to be able to get people to change their behavior is understanding how they think and operate. So I went back to school and I got interested in sociology without ever having taken a psychology course. So I was, you know, majoring in that, hoping to do some sort of like, you know, help help the general public in certain, you know, in some sort of way, like public health efforts, perhaps. And it wasn't until I took my first psychology course as an undergraduate that I realized that's what I wanted to be majoring in. That's how, that's how you learn how people work and what makes them tick. So I really, really loved psychology. I got involved in doing research as an undergraduate and it was um, depression, anxiety type of research. And for me, it was it was like a wake up call that 
we knew so little about these mental health issues. You know, depression has been around for so long. I thought we knew what causes it and what's going on. And we didn't. Or only to a certain degree, with some degree of certainty, and there's still a lot unknown. Um, so I got interested in mental health research. And, um, you know, I, I didn't think I would be good at working as a therapist. I just actually thought I would be better as a researcher, even though I had people telling me, you know, I really think that you should be working with people and, you know, more in the trenches um, and it wasn't until I started graduate school that maybe like my second year in that I realized, <laughs> although I love learning and researching and critically thinking and having, you know, discussions, philosophical, intellectual discussions, I don't enjoy doing actual, you know, like writing of papers and, and I would be better just working in the field, not going into research and academia. Um, and it was, it was coupled with the experiences I was having as a therapy student, just the responses I was getting from, you know, the, the patients I was working with. And it, you know, I, I just seemed to be connecting well. And even in classroom settings where we were learning about therapy and doing role plays, I seemed to do really well. So, you know, here I, here I was, you know, deciding to go into therapy and also working with low socioeconomic and um, more marginalized groups. I was working in community mental health centers, the VA, and you know that's my way that I can give back you know I I come from a privileged background middle class um it, white <laughs> background and I've never wanted to use my education to to make money but to help others and I've always been drawn to more marginalized groups in, in many ways, many instances throughout my life. Um, but really just, you know, I, having grown up on the South side of Chicago, I can connect uh, with others who've grown up, you know, on the South side or the West side of Chicago. I cannot understand the experiences that they've had, you know, to any by any means but perhaps better than others you know it's a really white dominated field to be honest and and um you know I do have familiarity I've driven through these neighborhoods I've walked through these neighborhoods I've been you know called white girl and all of these these other things <laughs> um jumped <laughs> um but I keep going to those communities and it, it means a lot to me to keep frequenting them and, and be a patron of them. So what does that have to do with disability, except that it's um, mental health in itself is, is a disability. Um, and whether it's a full on, you know, keeping you from working full time or, or just, you know, more of an interference that's interrupting your life, that it's still disabling. Um, and 
stigmatized, <laughs> very stigmatized. And I think that um, disability is very stigmatized, not just um, mental, but also physical. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That was really circuitous and I'm not sure if it answered. Uh, your no, question. no, no, it's, it's, it's fine. Um, cause let me just talk a little bit about your work in the mental health and disability area. Um, mm -hmm. what kind of research, what's the, re what's that all about? What sorts of things do you focus on in your area of research? Um, because I understand you you work a lot in neuropsychology and all these aspects. So could you elaborate on that? Yes, absolutely. So I have done um, two externships in neuropsychology. So two, um, two years, one year for each externship. And... Um, Although my future goal is to be a psychotherapist, a psychologist in a public hospital, I think it's very important to be a well-rounded um, clinician through getting neuropsychology experience as well. And I, 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 I really just thought of that in the beginning going into it and applying for it because I, I didn't have to do an externship in neuropsychology at all. And it was once I got into it um, that I learned how important it, it is um, and all of the, the different groups of individuals that you work with and help and identify what's going on and how is it that we can either live with this or fix it. Um, I also, I did an externship at the VA working in the spinal cord injury unit. And that in itself was actually just a coincidence that, you know, I applied for an externship as a therapist and that was the unit that I ended up working on. And so I worked with individuals, you know, with with physical disabilities in a number of capacities, paraplegia, quadru or tetraplegia, quadriplegia, um, MS. And, you know, when I say that to people, they assume that what we were doing was working on, you know, like coping, coping with their physical disability. But it wasn't, <laughs> you know, in some ways it was, but it was more so I was working with individuals who had, you know, the same types of mental health issues that a lot of people have anxiety and depression, and it was interfering with their life. And it was more just limitations in the typical therapy that we might give that it needed to be tailored, um, in certain ways, depending on depending on the individual's um, mobility and their ability to participate in certain therapeutic techniques that we often do, such as like journaling or um, you know writing down your thoughts. If you're not able to do these things, then you know we have to find alternative ways to to implement implement these interventions. Um, and it yeah. 
And it, it also gave me a better understanding of just the basic aspects of, of living. Um, you know, working with individuals for whom just getting ready for the day or taking a shower or using the bathroom is a process or they can't do it independently or, you know, it just takes so much longer than individuals who are, you know, completely physically abled. And, you know, it's, it, it yeah, I feel like there's so much I can say about it. <laughs> um, it, it, it can be challenging to deal with. And, and um, at the same time, it's, it's, The same sort of symptoms, you know, like depression, anxiety. It's just everyone's different. <laughs> and with that population, it can revolve around, you know, just activities of daily living or independent activities of daily living that most people take for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So um, in terms of like neuropsychology, I also understand that you do certain assessments within that um, area. So like, tell me a little bit about those. And um, I know this is a two parter, but and how do how does those types of assessments really help people who are struggling with mental health, people with disabilities to like, help them get the resources they need to sort of get back on the feet on their feet, if they will, and like navigate the course of their life. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. And it's why I think neuropsychology is so important. Um, what a neuropsychologist does is typically they're referred. Uh, a patient is referred from either their general um, practitioner, or, you know, maybe a general medical doctor in the ER or their neurologist, they can be referred by anyone really a speech pathologist. And maybe they're having concerns about cognition. And that can be due to so many different factors. It can be due to stress. It can be, you know, someone might be having difficulty concentrating in memory. Um, and it can be due to depression, anxiety, it can be due to ADHD. So I'm most people know what ADHD is. Um, it can be due to uh, physiological disorders, you know, this whole wide range. And so what a neuropsychologist does is get a full clinical interview. You know, what is it that you're experiencing for how long? You know, we, we take medical history, family history, social history, educational history, employment history, everything, um, current symptoms, past symptoms, current difficulties. So for example, if someone is coming in and they're having a lot of memory issues and you know we're maybe suspecting some cognitive decline, dementia or something to that effect, um, then we're asking very targeted questions. You know, are you having, are you losing just every day? Um, items uh do you leave things on the stove you know those sorts of basic questions are you able to handle your own medications are you able to you know pay your own bills and then what we do after that is give individuals 
an intellectual assessment. So like an IQ test. And then we also assess for the entire range of neurocognitive domains, really cognitive domains. So um, we're looking at attention, processing speed, um, working memory, long-term memory, uh, visuospatial abilities, visual memory, verbal memory, verbal abilities, language abilities, executive functioning, you know, all of these different areas. And that allows us to understand what's going on with that individual. Based on the patterns of their scores on these tests, we can determine, you know, we think this might be due to depression or anxiety, or we think this is ADHD or dementia, and uh, we think it's cardiovascular, this is Alzheimer's dementia. And that informs um, their treatment. It can inform their treatment, of course, based on, on the disorder, you know, learning disability, all of these, all of these things are an intellectual disability. Um, and so what a neuropsychologist does is take all of these findings from reports and sometimes, you know, from these assessments. And sometimes we get reports from family members or teachers when it's, when it's needed. And we'll compare all of this information combined with what we gathered in the clinical interview and provide a diagnostic impression and then recommendations and for individuals with mental illness, um, sometimes it can be that we, you know, recommend that this individual can only work part-time or they're not able to work full-time or, or they are able to work full-time, um, but they need certain accommodations in the workplace, such as, you know, frequent breaks or a quiet, um, non-distracting environment. And we'll make these recommendations in our, in our report that they would provide to their employer um, if they're looking for workplace accommodations um, or if they're filing for, you know, disability income, you know, Social Security, SSDI, um, as treatment recommendations, you know, perhaps you should consult with a psychiatrist or you should engage in psychotherapy and we suspect that some of these symptoms will be alleviated. Um, and if they're not, come back. Um, recommendations for family members as well, how to get involved or help when it's indicated. I hope that was, I know it was thorough. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, yeah, there, it's good. Yeah, it's good enough. It's, yeah, I like, I like that answer. Um, so if I could just like ask, what sort of stakeholders do you partner with in like your efforts of, you know, helping people with mental health, people with disabilities? Like you said, you talked, you work with a lot of professionals. Um, um like neuros or just, so I'm actually, I'm currently still a PhD clinical psychology student. And so my work has been through internships and externships, uh, working under supervision of um, doctoral, you know, clinical, not doctor, clinical doctors, um, PsyDs and PhDs, um, 
And then also as a student, I conduct research. Um, and that has been in collaboration with like my research advisors. Um, and for that, I've been mostly interested in anxiety and depression research. Um, recently submitted a paper about um, the trajectory of obsessive compulsive symptoms during childhood. And um, my current advisor, who I plan to be doing research work with, um, she is involved with community-based participatory research and individuals from marginalized or underserved communities, maybe is the better um, terminology for that, as well as um, advocacy um, for individuals, you know, seeking mental health or even, you know, uh, physical challenges and mental health um, rehabilitation. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome. So like if my last question here is, I know there's a lot of stigma with disability and also mental health in our society. So what I'm wondering is, how do you sort of mitigate that and like create a welcoming environment, welcoming and inclusive environment for not only people with disabilities, but those struggling with mental illness? That's a really great question. And, and, you know, the short answer is compassion and patience with individuals and where they're coming from and not passing judgment for the experiences that people have and how they're perceived. I, so I, I, I very much do practice what I, what I believe when I'm out and about. Um, I do live in a neighborhood that is home to a lot of rehabilitation uh, facilities for individuals with physical uh, disabilities as well as mental health disabilities. Um, so I've, I, you know, I'm very much um, embrace them when I'm out and about and, and communicate, say hello, have a little chat or friendly conversation with them. And, you know, when I'm riding the CTA or, or the Chicago transit, the L train, uh, there tend to be a lot of individuals with mental health issues. So certainly trying to lead by example at times when, when everyone's looking at someone who might be speaking to themselves on the train, you know, I just sit there and sit near them and um, try to normalize it for others, try to, to model that. Um, and for me, I'll, I'll say twofold. I've n I have not particularly held too much stigma. I can't say I haven't. It's it's very innate for us to kind of categorize people and and um, use stereotypes. It, it is common for us to just kind of do. That's how our brain works. Um, but I grew up in a family that 
has a lot of mental illness, you know, my family members, my aunt, my, you know, other members. And so I kind of grew up with it and never really thought much about it. You know, that was just my aunt. That's how she is. She has several disabilities and, you know, visual vision impaired. Um, so it, it was kind of just always my reality. And I did learn that there is a lot of stigma towards individuals with schizophrenia I didn't learn that until my mid-20s after having already made friends with, with individuals who were homeless and no doubt had, you know, psychosis or schizophrenia. Um, but also with research. I've recently gotten on board with stigma research because it has been shown that not just institutional or societal stigma towards an individual, but the stigma that an individual perceives who's living it can actually impede them, them seeking treatment or even make their symptoms worse. Um, having this stigma, you know, like, why do I have this? It's my fault or, you know, something's really wrong with me. And that actually just compounds the, the mental and, and, you know, physical challenges that an individual seeks or faces, excuse me. And there's not much research supporting it. And the way it kind of works in the psychology field at the very least is, you know, you, you want to show it among different disorders. So it's been shown with schizophrenia. It's been shown with a few other disorders, but, you know, not with all of them. And uh, so, so for my dissertation, I plan to fill a gap uh, looking at uh, stigma towards um, menstrual-based symptoms. You know, there's the whole joke of women getting PMS, but there's some truth to it. What's going on? You know, there's something hormonally going on that all these women, you know, display all these symptoms. And for some, it's really severe. And so I'm interested in understanding how stigma towards that has um, shaped those individuals' experiences, symptoms, seeking treatment, and whatnot. Um, stigma is, whew, it's quite a battle to face. Um, and I will say it's been shown that there's a researcher who does a lot of this work at my university. And so, so I've, I've learned a bit through what he does. And what he's shown is that just educating an individual about someone's condition. So paraplegia um, uh, or mental illness, whatever it may be, is not particularly, particularly effective at breaking stigmas. And really it's meeting people who are with the lived experience, you know, just meeting someone who has, who's living with that disability helps to break the stigmas. And I mentioned before that I was doing canvassing work and, and I really love, you know, I loved seeing lobbyists um, and the lobbyists that I was, you know, fundraising the money to support their salaries. And I've always wanted to be a lobbyist and work at a um, public level. So, you know, if possible, at some point, I would like to get involved with uh, mental health advocacy groups and, and efforts, helping to ameliorate all this stigma that that is present 
it towards, um, towards disabilities, you know, it's, and it'll take a lot of unified efforts across many fields and disciplines. Yeah, it, it really, it really requires a unified effort. But like you said earlier, when, when treating these individuals, like do it with compassion and, and, uh, like with empathy and stuff like that absolutely oh yes yes um and patience just patience um <laughs> you know with therapy it, it it's hard for people to change you know it's hard for people mm -hmm. to change how they think and how they behave and so a lot of times you know, what we're talking about in therapies is repetitive and it might seem to be, oh, we keep talking about the same thing, but um, that's, that's how change comes about. <laughs> it's, it's a process. And so being patient with, with where someone is, meeting them where they're at um, is huge. And I, you know, I, I think everyone is capable of patience and compassion. I think some have more than others. Um, but yeah, it, empathy as well. Empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can agree on that. <laughs> Good. All right, everybody, that does it for today's episode of My Friends with Wheels podcast. Today, I talked with Emily Ginger about her work in clinical psychology. It was a really fun and interesting conversation into this subject, most of which I did not know before, and I hope you learned something too. Anyway, feel free to tune in for to other episodes of this podcast, but until then, have a wonderful day. Bye-bye, everyone.